This week on the 624, we talk about water on asteroids and why radiometric dating doesn't work. Let's get started. Welcome to the 624, the weekly podcast of Central Texas Creation Ministries, taking a stand on God's Word and trusting it from the very first verse. Join us as we look at creation and the Bible to understand the world around us. Welcome to The 624. My name is Dave Napier. I am the host of the podcast and founder of Central Texas Creation Ministries and the Central Texas Creation Conference coming up on October 12th. Uh, I am excited that you guys are hanging out here with me on The 624, where even the name tells you, uh, you just heard my computer ding there. That's awesome. Uh, Where even the name tells you that God created in six literal 24-hour days. Now, look, I am thankful that you guys are here because I know you have a choice, and I'm glad that you decided to spend some time with me here on the 624. And I hope you had a great weekend. I had a great weekend. I always have a great weekend. Uh, I saw Spider-Man Far From Home this weekend. Uh, wow. I did enjoy it. It was. It's kind of crazy. Um what they're doing with Spider-Man and the whole Marvel comic universe and everything. Uh, I'm not crazy about the direction. I mean, if we're being honest here and well, it's my podcast, so I can be honest. Uh, I'm not crazy about the whole direction they went with MJ and the flash. And if you don't really know the story of Spider-Man, this means nothing to you. But if you've seen Spider-Man, you're a fan of it, then you, you kind of understand how they've gone different directions with these characters you know, I just kind of feel like, you know, the original author created those characters the way they are for a reason. If you want to do a different story with different characters, then go write a different story in different characters. But anyway, I digress. So I did really enjoy the, the movie. It's actually, it's kind of cool to be a, a Marvel fan right now because there's so much uncertainty. I mean, you just went through the Infinity Wars and... um you know, several things happen. I, I don't want to like do any spoiler alerts, but uh, so many things happen. And so there's so much uncertainty right now as to what's going to happen in the future for these characters. And so uh, it's kind of a cool time because you don't really know what's happening. And then at the end of this movie, uh, Spider-Man Far From Home, if you haven't seen it, you need to see it, especially in the ending. It changes everything, okay? This is a pivotal movie for the MCU, so be sure and check that out. Um, so anyway, I had a great wing weekend. I almost said a wind. I had a great weekend, uh, enjoyed the movie, got to go hiking. It was an awesome time. Uh, so anyway, I uh, hope you had a great weekend. Now, as we get into the podcast today, I want to talk about an article uh, that says that there could be a lot more water in the universe than we first thought. Maybe. We think. So the, the name of the article is, Japan found water on an asteroid and it could reveal secrets about Earth. Man, they just love writing these headlines that are just, no, you can't, no, that's not really what it is. But anyway... Uh, they are trying to make some assumptions about Earth, and we'll get into that here. The idea behind the article is actually kind of cool, to be honest with you, because they're using ion microprobes to find water within these crystals, these pyroxene crystals uh, on asteroids. Now, 
this is this is really cool stuff. So first, the fact that we can detect water inside crystals is incredible, right? I mean, we're, we're not talking about water sloshing around inside of a crystal. We're talking about the very makeup, the very structure of the crystal is part water. Okay, it's these little bitty tiny amounts, anywhere from 150 to 998 parts per million. Okay, per million. Little bitty amounts. How cool is it that we can detect that? This is good operational science that is awesome. Okay, we can actually create a laser that shoots out a beam of charged ions that then allows us to identify the different elements within a sample without breaking it up, crushing it, slicing it, any of this kind of stuff. Okay, this is awesome technology. And we, now, the truth is we have to be careful because it is very sensitive. It can be finicky. As a matter of fact, uh, it was... Uh, Dr. Andrew Snelling, he did a YouTube video, and I'll, I'll try and post this on the website, uh, all about radiometric dating, because we're going to be talking about that today, too, so I'll put that on the website. But he talks about using an ion microprobe, or it's a type of ion microprobe, and when they shoot it in one certain point, it says, now, this, is, this gets into how radiometric dating works, but based on the materials that they find in the sample, they can tell how old something is. I'm not going to get into that, but just know that's what it is. Uh, anyway, if they put the probe in one certain area, it says that it's 5 million years old. But if they move it just slightly over, it says it's 1.5 million years old. So a difference of 3.5 million years, that's slightly different. So the technology is a little finicky. It's very, very exact. you got to pinpoint this stuff a little bit. But the bottom line is that they have found water on asteroids. So everybody was looking for it as in like ice, frozen ice in there or something like that, but they're actually finding it in the crystals. Now this is from a Japanese probe called the Hayabusa that gathered these samples from asteroids, uh, it's, well, it was one specific asteroid called the, I, I'm going to mess this up, Itokawa. You know, I actually sat there and tried to say, got to where I could say it, and then I get into it and you you just flub it. Itokawa. Itokawa. Now, they actually got this off the asteroid in 2003. Now, there's a whole bunch of articles written on this. One of the articles actually mentions that they estimate that this huge asteroid uh, could make up like 0.5 of like half of 1% of our oceans. Now, why is this important? Well, because water is important to life, right? And so we're always looking for it. It's been our focus for years now. We got to find water. We've got to find water, whether it's on Mars or Pluto or asteroids, wherever, because where we can find water, we think we can find life, right? However, more importantly is the question, where did we get all the water on Earth? This is an even bigger question because it goes to our origins. Not just is there life out there, but how did we get the water on Earth? Scientists and astronomers have been trying to figure this out for quite a while now. And so there's a few problems with this whole exciting new discovery when it comes to evolution saying, aha, this is how we got water on Earth through these asteroids. First, uh, there's Hayabusa that went to Itokawa, uh, but there's also a second probe called Hayabusa 2. It just went out to another asteroid, and guess what? 
they didn't find a whole lot of water in the crystals on this one. And so the concept was they found it, the Hayabusa found it on Itokawa. Hopefully I said that right. And so they said, aha, it's probably, there's a whole bunch of pyroxene crystals and other minerals and stuff that probably have the water inside of them all over the universe and all the asteroids. And so that's how we have all this water. So we probably have water all over the universe. And so this is the concept. This is what they're excited about. But with the Hayabusa 2, it comes back and says, no, not necessarily. This one doesn't have all that water. Now, of course, the concept of a huge asteroid containing this water is tantalizing to an evolutionist because they figure if they can get that amount of water for, you know, half of 1% of all of our oceans, all they need to add is time and more asteroids in order to get all the water that we have on Earth. Uh, remember, time is the magic answer. Time is the divine, uh, what do they call it? Uh, Deus ex machina in the old, was it the old Greek tragedies? Was it the Greek tragedies? I think it was. They had this device, so they would, they would write this story. I'm going off script here. They would write this story, and they would write themselves into a corner where there's no resolution. And so what they would do is they would have a god come down and put everything back in order. They'd say, ah, the Greek god so-and-so comes down and fixes everything. And so it was a, it was a, a device, a, a literary device called Deus Ex Machina. So the idea is, as long as they have enough time, they can fix anything. They can get anything they need. Now, that's assuming, of course... Uh, that you can figure out how the water was released from the crystals once the asteroids hit the Earth. Okay, That's also assuming that you can calculate how much of the water would actually survive being released from the crystals or that was lost. Because once it's released, especially in the early Earth, supposedly from an evolutionary point of, point of view, the Earth would have been molten. It would have been hot. And so there would have been all this heat and lava and all this uh, you know molten rock and and magnetic fields and all this kind of stuff how do you get the water to survive this now one article actually suggested that it may not be that it's the asteroids that are bringing the water to earth but that the earth itself so all the rocks in this protoplanetary disk so a big cloud of rocks and dust that's spinning creates the Earth. It, they all start coming together, create the Earth. And all these rocks have the same kind of crystals or minerals that have water in them. And so once you get them all together, somehow magically it releases the water and you get a whole bunch of oceans, right? And I mean, the interesting thing is there is pyroxene crystals uh on Earth today. And so it is an interesting concept, but it is far, far, far from an answer. There's absolutely no good observational evidence that says that the pyroxene crystals on Earth released water in order to get us oceans. There's just nothing to that. So, of course, we have to remember also that all of this, all of it, is a complete speculation. It's computer models that we've created, that we've manipulated. It's based on assumptions that we've made. And it's all about past events that we weren't there to observe. So, cool technology. I mean, think about it. We're shooting lasers 
into objects, and then we're able to tell what they're made up of. I mean, that's like Star Trek stuff, like Geordi and Data kind of stuff. All right, one of those little devices they have that they walk around and they, you know, identify like Star Trek kind of technology. We're getting there. This is awesome stuff. This is an awesome time to live in. Um, you think about it. We strapped a highly sensitive piece of technology on a huge rocket and shot it up in the air. And then we guided it to an asteroid, this huge asteroid hurtling through space. And on the move, we landed this probe and got readings and picked up samples, took off and brought them back to Earth. And the Hayabusa 2 is doing the same thing right now. This is awesome stuff. This is good operational science. Absolutely exciting and amazing because it's operational science to create the rocket, to create the technology that, that gets the readings and picks up the samples to actually uh, do the computers that guides the probe to the asteroid. All this stuff is good operational science. It is exciting. It's an exciting time to live, to be honest with you, and it's only getting cooler. So, of course, uh, you know, the idea is that it is good operational science. We just have to be careful of the assumptions we wind up making on the historical science based on what we're finding. Our conclusions are going to be wrong if we start with the wrong presuppositions. we got to remember that. So, of course, I'll have that article and more stuff posted on my website. You can check that out, of course, at... Uh, I just forgot my own website. CentralTexasCreation.com www.CentralTexasCreation.com But for the rest of the podcast, I want to get into radiometric dating. We're going to talk just a little bit about it. We'll finish up next time. Uh, many of you listening probably right now uh, know what I'm talking about, about radiometric dating. Some of you... Uh, may be wondering how you match people based on the, the radio stations that they listen to. Uh, radiometric dating is not that. So clearly not what we're talking about. But let me ask you this. How do you know how old the Earth is? I mean, think about it. There's no tag on it that tells you how old it is. Uh, you know, Facebook doesn't remind you of its birthday, right? That's one of my favorite features of Facebook because I'm terrible about birthdays. <laughs> The worst part is some of my family still isn't on Facebook, and so I still mess up. But anyway, uh, you know, the Earth doesn't have a birthday party. Pretty sure I wouldn't be invited even if it did. Uh, you know, the truth is, is that we've been guessing for years of how old the Earth is. And it, there's no exact way to do it to figure it out either. You know, we've tried to uh, date asteroids because we figure, well, if it's an asteroid, it must be made up of the same stuff. If, if you know, you think about it, Evolution says that the solar system formed about four and a half billion years ago. So all these planets were starting to form right around the same time. So we figure if we can date the asteroid, then we just tell everybody the Earth is about the same age as the asteroid. And we use radiometric dating to do that. Now, radiometric dating is a way of... of you know, dating something, seeing how old it is. Now, we mostly do it on igneous rock. There's a few different types of rock. Igneous is the one that works the best with radiometric dating. Uh, now, I'm not going to explain too much about this because uh, the exciting part is we're going to have a breakout session at the conference this year at the Central Texas Creation Conference, uh, the Tower and the Flood. One of the breakout sessions is going to be on radiometric dating. Great guy. James Johnson is going to be teaching this. 
He is actually a science teacher in San Marcos at Hill Country Christian School. Can you imagine a creationist science teacher? Holy cow, that's impossible, right? It's true. I met him through the conference and uh, have gotten to know him over the last few months. Great guy. I absolutely love his passion, his desire to to just understand God's creation and then to share that information. And so I wanted him to teach during the conference. So radioisotopes, let's go back to the basics here. They start out as radioactive, unstable isotopes. Okay. And then they actually decay. When they decay, they change into another type of isotope. Starts out as radioactive and unstable. When it decays over time, it turns into a stable, non-radioactive isotope. Okay, And there's a certain amount of time that it takes to decay. And it's that time, we can actually measure that time. Once we know how long it takes... We can then find those isotopes in rock and use that to age the rock. And again, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this because James is going to blow your mind with it at the conference. Uh, However, the idea is that we can actually date rocks based on the half-life that we measure of the decay of these isotopes. So the thing I want to mention, though, on this podcast is that this is not an exact science. We'll talk about some other stuff later, but I just want to focus on the fact that this is not an exact science. Look, we know it's not an accurate science because we don't get the same answers. Think of it this way. There's multiple isotopes that they use to do these tests. Potassium decays into argon, lead. There's multiple kinds of lead. There's radioactive kinds and non-radioactive kinds. So you can do a lead-lead test. Rubidium turns into strontium, or excuse me, decays into strontium. Uh, Samarium decays into neodymium. So you can do multiples, and there's several others as well. Those are just some examples. But think of it this way. If all the assumptions are correct... And they're not. But if all the assumptions are correct and the radiometric dating works, then no matter which one of these isotopes you used, you should get the same answer. You should get the same age. But the problem is you don't. As a matter of fact, uh, when you bring something to a lab that uh, radiometric dates things, they usually ask you on the form how old it's supposed to be. You kind of have to ask, wait a second, why are you asking me that? You are the one with the science equipment. You should be telling me. But the reason is because even when they run the same test with different samples, they get different answers. Okay. Uh, Now, I want to give you just a few examples of this as we kind of wrap up here. Especially in the Grand Canyon, I want to give you a few examples and, and talk about this. When we talk about getting different answers based off the different tests that we use, there's two different ways we can talk about it. Think about it this way. Grand Canyon, there's the Cardenas Basalt. They actually ran different tests on the basalt there in the Grand Canyon. Uh, Potassium argon came up with 516,000 years. Okay, that's a long time. Uh, Here's a problem. Samarium neodymium came up with 1.58 million years. That's almost triple the amount of years. Same same rock, but triple the years. Now, if all the assumptions are correct and all the science is good, 
we should have gotten the same answer no matter which one of these tests we ran. But we don't do that. Now, they also did some on the Brahma Amphibolites in the Grand Canyon. Potassium Argon, they got several different answers. A couple of different answers, actually. They actually had two single samples. Um, they got 1.2 billion years old, and then they got 2.5 billion years old. Same test, potassium argon, double the amount of years. And so you got 1.2 and then 2.5. If you do lead lead, it's 1.88 right in the middle there. If you do samarium neodymium, 1.65. Okay, very different numbers based on which test you run. And yet, if the assumptions are correct and the science is good, you should get the same answer. Now, one of the things, other things that they can, you can kind of look at is not just the different tests, but you can test different things. You can test the full rock sample. So you just take the rock, you crush it up, and then you start testing it for different things. Or you can pull out minerals or crystals or uh, different things out of the rock and test just those things. For example, uh, they had some, there was a different basalt flow up on a plateau in the Grand Canyon, and they actually did potassium argon dating. They tested the full rock samples. There was two samples of full rock. They got 443,000 years old, and the second sample, 1.16 million years old. Okay. Then they pulled out the olivine. Okay, there's a, a, a mineral called olivine. It's in the rock. They pulled it out and tested just the olivine. Guess what they got? 20.7 million years old. And the second sample? 46.5 million years old. This is a real problem. That is a major difference. Yet that rock, no matter what you test, no matter which test you run, it should come up with the same answer, and yet it never does. I won't say never. I'll say most of the time it doesn't. You think about Mount St. Helens. Same thing. Potassium argon dating. Full rock age, 350,000 years. Pyroxene age. Remember that 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 uh, crystal. Pyroxene age, 1.7 million years to 2.8 million years. You see, we know that the science isn't right. It it all the the good operational science part of it. The actual observation of the decay rates and things like this are good. It's the assumptions that we make in order to come up with the dates that are wrong. So we have to understand that this is not an exact science. Now, for now, I hope that this whets your appetite. I hope it gives you something to think about, that radiometric dating is not something to be scared of. It ultimately shows that there is so much missing from the evolutionary story, that there is still so much more that needs to be explained in this evolutionary story. But I hope that you'll join me next time for the podcast uh, where we finish up talking about radiometric dating. Uh, but until then, I hope that you'll go ahead, that you'll review the podcast, that you'll leave feedback, and that you'll tell your friends. Would you tell your friends 
about this podcast so that they can learn about creation, so that their eyes can be open just like ours were, so that they can be excited about what the Bible says and about what God tells them, that they can trust God's word from the very first verse. Do you want that for your friends? Because that's exactly what creation does. It helps us trust God's word from the very first verse. It helps us trust him with our lives, with our uh, with our families, with everything. And so I pray that you'll tell your friends about the podcast. But until then, I pray that God would bless you with knowledge to know him and courage to share him. Thank you for listening to The 624, the weekly podcast of Central Texas Creation Ministries. Join us again next time as we look at creation and the Bible to understand the world around us. To learn more, visit our website at www.centraltexascreation.com.